Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Loud enough before, but now I'm loud. So, um, hello, my name is Martin Heavyhead, and uh, first off. I got a plug next week, Sackville session. Next week we have uh, Sophie LaBelle, and uh, she the the topic is what is trans feminism? What can it bring to feminism in general? How do you define class? Oh, cis sexism. Sorry, I don't have my glasses. Why is it relevant to address cis sexism? So uh, that'll be next week, Thursday, April second, twenty fifteen. So come out for that, and. Um, so I have uh, I have uh, Professor Hall's official bio here, and I'll read that to you. Having started his academic career in 1982, Dr. Anthony Hall is currently Professor of Globalization Studies at the University of Lethbridge in Alberta, Canada. Professor Hall's academic specialties include Indigenous Studies, International Law, North American History, as well as the Global History of Colonization. He is a regular contributor to Veterans Today and has written for The Globe and Mail, Reader's Digest, and The Toronto Star, The Canadian Encyclopedia, The Dictionary of Canadian Biography, and The American Indian Quarterly, among other venues. Dr. Hall's most ambitious project to date is a double-volume peer-reviewed text published by a prestigious university press entitled The Bowl with One Spoon. The second volume, Earth and a Property, Colonization, Decolonization, and Capitalism, was selected by The Independent in the UK as one of the best books of 2010. Choice, the Journal of the American Library Association, calls it a scholarly, scholarly tour de force. So I... My, my father worked at the university when I was a ch- when I was a child. So I'd run up and down the hallways, disturbing everybody. I'd put on roller skates, and I'd go up and down. And so, among the people that I had seen there was uh, Tony Hall. And I, because I was so young, and these are my first memories. And because he was one of the people that I had seen around, he kind of became an archetype to me. It's just one of those people that I've never, ever forgotten. And my earliest, where I learned what the word protest meant was one of my earliest memories was uh, of Dr. Hall wearing chains and protesting. And I remember asking my father, what is he doing? And he said, he's protesting. And I had never, ever had the concept before that a person could speak up against authority. And when you're a child, that's a mind-blowing thing to have happen. So I have Dr. Hall to thank for that. And uh, I'd like to introduce him now. Thanks so much. As I recall that day, we were protesting. Protestants do protests. Uh, we were protesting chain gangs in Alberta. And I remember, remember uh, Gordon Campbell was one of the others carrying the chain. And uh, many people that I'd met here in the uh, Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. So it's a great honor and pleasure to speak to the home crew here, the home team. I did hear uh, a couple of the presentations of Sophie Harkett last week. 
And it was really terrifying to hear, to see a vision and hear a vision of the Canada we seem to be going into, that her experiences could become much broader, those kind of experience of living in a, in a police state. So I'm going to, uh, I wrote a 47-page paper. It's 11,000 words. Copies are sitting of it right there. So obviously I won't be able to read uh, the full presentation, but I'm looking forward to posting it later today, and I'm quite uh, sure that there'll be a lot of interest in this subject in Tehran, uh, and uh, so I've, I've, I've signaled it over there. Uh, so if you're interested to read along, I will read some portions, and I will paraphrase other portions. So if, perchance, you're in the old school, where we used to do this often, bring in papers, there are the papers right up front there. So I'm calling this on the need to reestablish sensible diplomatic relations between Canada and the Islamic Republic of Iran. The state of formal relations between the governments of Canada and the Islamic Republic of Iran are abysmal. Just days ago, Stephen Harper implicitly urged on an internal uprising within Iran. In a speech in Vancouver, he ushered in Nowruz, the Persian New Year, by conveying the view that Iran's current government rules through, quote, tyranny and oppression. In September of 2012, the Harper government unilaterally terminated Canada's embassy in Tehran while simultaneously expelling, expelling Iranian diplomats from Ottawa. Canada views the government of Iran as the most significant threat to global peace and security in the world today, declared Harper's then Foreign Affairs Minister, John Baird. In my view, the Harper government's characterization of both the domestic condition and the international orientation of Iran is grossly inaccurate. Our own foreign policy towards Iran is ill-considered and inconsistent with Canada's genuine national interest, but especially our economic, cultural, and geopolitical interests. The heartland of the ancient civilization of Persia Iran is a resource-rich country at the crossroads of Eurasia, poised between the Persian Gulf in the south and the Caspian Sea in the north. Iran is home to a diverse population of almost 80 million people, and there's many more Iranians around the world, of course. Last summer, I was invited to Iran's capital, Tehran, as a delegate at a New Horizon International Conference of independent thinkers and filmmakers. In Tehran, I, joy, I enjoyed stimulating, wide-ranging, and free-flowing intellectual discourse with a distinguished group of colleagues, primarily from, out, from throughout uh, Europe, North America, and the Middle East. The, the host of the conference, Nader Talibzada, is a renowned journalist and filmmaker who regularly hosts a TV show, one of Iran's most popular public affairs broadcasts. I was invited to appear on Mr. Talibzadeh's show that included simultaneous simultaneous translation into Farsi, Persia's main language. 
The proceedings of the New Horizon Conference were intensively and extensively covered by the Iranian news media, and it has a big and uh, complex news media. One of my assignments was to interpret recent developments in Canada for Iranian audiences. Since my visit to, uh, the, uh, to Iran, the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, created a significant political and constitutional crisis in the United States by addressing Congress without the approval of the U.S. President, Barack Obama. Netanyahu's aim was to cut off the possibility of a deal on Iran's nuclear energy program between the governments of Iran and the five members of the UN Security Council plus Germany. So it should be emphasized that is the framework of these negotiations. It's not between Israel and the United States and Iran as it's depicted in our, in our media. It's with the permanent members of the UN Security Council, and it's a UN process at the highest level. These negotiations are tied to what I would describe as an elaborate scheme of economic warfare designed to hurt the people and government of Iran. The preferred scenario here is obvious. The economic pain is being inflicted to intervene in the internal sovereignty of the Islamic Republic of Iran. As Stephen Harper's recent Nauru speech in Vancouver helps cl clarify, and Nauru is the beginning of the new year in Persia, so it has a different calendar. And as I'll discuss subsequently, Barack Obama gave a very different present presentation on Nauru uh, in, uh, in Washington. Uh, the preferred agenda here is that the foreign imposition of so-called sanctions will help induce a significant portion of the Iranian people to rise up against their own system of government. Under the existing conditions in the region, this tactic of, re of regime change is reprehensible. Unlike Canada's ally and arms customer, Saudi Arabia, Iran is the site of frequent elections that do result in significant alterations in, public in the public policies of the Iranian government. As long as the Canadian government continues as a protagonist in this economic warfare, many Canadian enterprises that are anxious to conduct business with their Iranian counterparts will continue to be hampered. Government interventions in the imperatives of free trade will continue to deprive Canadian companies of a secure legal framework to inter interact commercially with a relatively stable, resource-rich, resource and technologically sophisticated country, one whose well-educated population includes a very high proportion of university-educated women. There's little doubt that Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper is following a line in his conduct of Canadian foreign policy that is inconsistent with that of his neoconservative colleagues and mentors in the U.S. Republican Party. Indeed, since Stephen Harper delivered his notorious speech to the Israeli Knesset in 2014, early in 2014, the government of Canada has outdone the government of the United States in subordinating its national interests to the political agenda of Likudnik-dominated Israel. 
I should develop these con uh, contentions in the remainder of my presentation. And a lot of this presentation has to do with politics and Alberta, because the present government of Canada has its roots in the politics of Alberta, and especially in the uh, roots of uh, the Reform Party, which has beneath it the Social Credit Party of, uh, of Alberta. And it, that is the real taproot, rather than the Progressive Conservative Party of Canada, which I argue has, in a sense, been obliterated, pushed to the side in favor of this more right-wing, neoconservative approach. So I'll read a little bit of this next section to give you an idea of, of my general approach. And then I'll break into uh, some, <clears throat> some full-fledged uh, paraphrasing. <clears throat> I want to continue this analysis with a twist that combines the local history of Alberta with one of the most consequential speeches ever given in the U.S. Congress. In January of 2002, U.S. President George W. Bush responded in his State of the Union address to the debacle of September 11, 2001. The address would come to be known as the Axis of Evil speech. In broadening the framework of what had already been christened as the global war on terror, Bush included Iran on a list of state culprits along with Iraq and North Korea. The U.S. president accused the Iranian government of, quote, exporting terror while an unelected few repressed the Iranian people's hope for freedom. As we shall see, this inflammatory characterization of Iran in the axis of evil speech would become embedded in Canadian foreign policy once the conservative party of Prime Minister Stephen Harper achieved a majority government in 2011. David Frum provided a link between the politics of Alberta and this important episode in U.S. and world history son of a well-known Canadian broadcaster, Barbara Frum, David Frum had a big part in the authorship of the Axis of Evil Speech, including its defining phrase. Ted Byfield mentored Frum on his way in the mid-1980s from the University of Toronto to Harvard Law School. The legendary founder and publisher of Alberta Report, Byfield gave from the opening to take part in an important hatchery of right-wing journalism. The feisty Alberta Report helped energize Preston Manning's Reform Party, the political launching pad for the current Prime Minister of Canada and one of, friends, uh, one of Frum's fellow uh, neocon travelers. Uh, David Frum appreciated the unabashed Christian conservatism of both Bush and Byfield. In a forward to his mentor's book, from celebrated Byfield's almost reckless courage to defend religion, even as he later savored how the phrase, axis of evil, seemed to fit George Bush's evangelical way of thinking and talking. From described the immortalized phrase as theological the sort of language President Bush used. A leading pro proponent, protagonist, and Israel-first propagandist, 
for the ongoing war on terror, David Frum continued the religious terminology he helped introduce in the Axis of Evil speech. In 2003, he co-authored with Richard Pearl, An End to Evil, How to Win the War on Terror. I mean, think about that title. It's pretty theological. It's pretty um, uh, heavy-duty, religious kind of language. Published in 2003, the book gave more explicit form and detail to the pre-9-11 political agenda introduced in 2000 by the future war cabinet of the then presidential candidate, George W. Bush. Pearl, the co-author of this book, Pearl had been prominent among those Israel First war hawks who joined together as the project for the new American century in their bid to win and then dominate a Republican Party White House. As one item in the From Pearl bullet points that they claimed would put an end to evil, they called on uh, government, U.S. government first, but government generally, quote, and uh, you can see this on the book jacket of this book, quote, to support the overthrow of the terrorist mullahs of Iran. That's That's the number one priority delivered in 2003, according to An End to Evil, How to Win the War on Terror. This type of provocation from a source that praised the role of Christianity in the politics of Bush and Byfield is very telling. Both the Axis of Evil speech and the End to Evil book deal in copious quantities of innuendo rather than evidence to connect the three targeted polities to the alleged culprits of 9-11. Iraq, Iran, and North Korea have to this day not really been connected to the events of 9-11, except with some sort of vague uh, commentary that they represent some some sort of ideological realm that we have to somehow defeat. Uh, University professors... Uh, mainstream media commentators and political spin doctors like David Frum have tended to obfuscate rather than illuminate the Cold War background of the global war on terror. The transformation of the apparatus of anti-communism into the apparatus of anti-terrorism created the major basis of President Bush's two-term presidency, even as Uh, Prime Minister Harper is presently deploying um, a similar strategy in his bid for a second majority government. So in the following section, which I call the Cold War and the seemingly never-ending global war on terror, uh, 13, 14 years and counting, uh, let's go back to the roots of what is taking place and has been taking place since the global war on terror was declared to, in a sense, replace the Cold War, which was no longer a viable way to describe militarism with the uh, disappearance of the Soviet Union, the major communist enemy. And during the Cold War, there was a very clear policy on, could I say, the U.S.-led side of the conflict, which was sometimes armed and sometimes ideological. It wasn't always cold. There was a policy to build up religion 
and especially Islamic religion and those with uh, agendas of Islamic theocracy. And uh, this is very clear. I read uh, Ian Johnson's book, A Mosque in Munich, describing in some detail how the CIA built up the Muslim Brotherhood in the face of uh, Nasser's pan-Arabism, which was somewhat socialistic, which was somewhat uh, 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 secular. Of course, every person, every politician in that part of the world has to make some uh, symbolic connection with the, with the prevalent religion, as our own uh, politicians of all stripes do. Uh, so uh, then let's look at Afghanistan, where it's very clear there's a movie made about it, Charlie Wilson's War, that the CIA, in coordination with the ISI in Pakistan, in co- coordination with uh, Osama bin Laden and others, built up the Mujahideen, Part of the Mujahideen was called Al-Qaeda by its CIA creators. And uh, we're attempting to use this uh, Islamic, theocratic, jihadist proxy army as a way to overthrow the government of Najibullah, a Soviet-backed regime. This was at the end of the Cold War. And Najibullah's regime was you know, doing quite a good job in terms of integrating women into the education system, universal education. There were aspects of that regime which uh, uh, projected forward many of the things that we say were in Afghanistan and elsewhere to project forward. Think of the removal of the regime of Muammar Gaddafi, who again was secular and socialist in his approach, made certain accommodations and respectful uh, symbols towards uh, his Islamic uh, countrymen. Uh, But it was definitely the more extreme religious factions that NATO supported to overthrow uh, the regime of uh, Libya, Libya which is now in chaos and perpetual civil war, Syria, uh, the U.S.-Israeli-Canadian backside, These are the more religious people. Uh, The government of Assad in Syria is more secular and has been quite successful in creating accommodation uh, between the very pluralistic constituencies, ethnicities, religious orientations of a a multicultural uh, Syria. Uh, So um, this is a a major uh, factor Um, And, of course, within this Cold War story, the coming to power of uh, Ayatollah Khomeini's regime in 1979 to replace the Shah. Of course, who is the Shah? How did he get in power? Well, it's very clear that it was a uh, CIA-backed agenda that Kermit Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt's grandson, uh, went into Iran with a, literally with a suitcase full of a million dollars, and the uh, elected uh, prime minister of Iran of that era, Mohammad Mossadegh, uh, was ousted from government, and his crime was that he was seeking to nationalize oil resources in the territory of the Anglo-Persian Oil Company. And the Anglo-Persian Oil Company became the supplier for the Royal Navy. Winston Churchill played a big role. 
when he was involved with the Admiralty, when he was Minister of the Royal Navy, essentially, in, in creating uh, the current, the, the structures in the first part of the 20th century in Iran as, as a, a supplier for the Royal Navy. And, of course, this was crucial to the whole um, rise of, of this industry, this amazing meteoric rise. Obviously, the fact that Britain was using Iran as, as its source uh, so, uh, you know, this Anglo-Persian oil company is now known as BP. And so when the Shah of Iran uh, was overthrown, or left voluntarily, actually, I remember as a, as a teenager watching television and seeing millions of people uh, happily embracing this uh, new kind of image that was, you know, unfamiliar to me, the Ayatollah Khomeini, and they were obviously ecstatic. And I remember seeing pictures of literally hundreds of thousands of people purposely looking at a camera and shaking their fists uh, out, of, out of anger. Uh, so uh, Jimmy Carter had a, a great deal to do with saying, okay, well, uh, let's, let's change um, directions here. Let's... Uh, and, of course, in, in his book, From uh, derides Jimmy Carter, saying, well, these uh, naive liberals had the idea that the Ayatollah Khomeini was some kind of Desmond Tutu and uh, didn't realize, you know, the, the profoundly tyrannical uh, uh, energy uh, that he contained. Uh, so, um, so this um, neoconservative exploitation of this legacy of the Cold War, which had exercised a lot of influence on the U.S. side to put in power Islamic governments and had actually armed the Mujahideen in Afghanistan and Al-Qaeda, which is blamed for the events of 9-11, was actually created by the CIA it's well-known. It's on record. There's a big movie about it with Tom Hanks. It's, it's, it's a well-known thing. But we never get this uh, image in the way things are explained to us. The way things are explained to us is that this Islamic enemy appeared somehow independently, somehow managed to somehow find finances and arms and schools and organizations uh, just independently. And uh, uh, so ISIL, for instance, just emerged magically and independently. Well, the pertinent question is who is funding ISIL or the Islamic State, which is not a state. And many Muslim people say it's not, uh, uh, it's not Muslim either. So let me go right to the uh, conclusion. And I have a lot on the history uh, and... Uh, <clears throat> Many countries, including Canada, have nuclear energy programs. The question of how best to produce energy for various industrial purposes is, of course, one of the most pressing and controversial global issues of our time. Especially after Fukushima, I, I for one, am no fan of producing electricity through the process of nuclear fission. I can well understand, however, why it has become an important point of principle and pride within Iran, that it has the same legal right as every other country to produce nuclear energy for pe peaceful purposes. And uh, I go on to talk about uh, 
these negotiations. On one level, the negotiations do send out the signal that there is some vitality left in UN procedures and mechanisms to emphasize negotiated alternatives to armed conflict. On the other hand, there is deep sense of irony, hypocrisy, and double standards permeating this process. There's a plenty of responsibility to go around for the huge and growing threat of nuclear annihilation. This terrible outcome could come in a flash or is presently happening in a long, slow decline in health and viability of all living organisms as we continue to be inundated by more, more Fukushima-style disasters. The Iranian government stands accused of stealth in misrepresenting the true nature of its nuclear program. Such, such accusations would better be directed at the nuclear superpowers, including the United States, Russia, China, France, and Israel. Together and individually, these states possess huge arsenals of weapons of mass destruction and are pushing many secret avenues and are pursuing many secret avenues to create new technologies of nuclearized mass murder. The direction of public resources into this kind of activity has nothing to do with national security or any other type of, of security, including human security, ecological security, or global security. Rather, this misappropriation of scarce public resources is part of the crimes against humanity mounted by the arms industry and its political lobbyists who are so corrupted our national uh, who have so corrupted our national governments that they are, they are no longer genuinely accountable to the citizens that elect them in the name of god this form of corporate terror from within must stop there is a long history, I'm really getting close to the end, there is long history of arms merchants working very closely with banking interests to fund both sides in conflict. The financing of competing armies in military confrontations can be seen as the original hedge funds. The, co the coalition of national armed forces fighting ISIL is based on a very clear example of the same financial backers providing support to both sides in armed conflict. The Canadian government is deeply mired in this duplicity. One of the biggest customers of the Canadian arms industry is Saudi Arabia. Arabia the Wahhabi governors of the Saudi dictatorship back ISIL and many other Takfiri groups paid to commit violence most frequently against Muslim people. The Islamic Republic of Iran is an important Eurasian country. The Islamic State, against which Canada is currently at war, is something entirely different. It's not a state, according to many, many Muslim people. It's not Islamic either. It is, in fact, a caricature that is being manipulated and exploited to rebrand re, uh, the Conservatives' global war on terror. Uh, <clears throat> I, I'm going to need three minutes. I might not be telecast, but... Uh, is that yeah, need to, to finish it? It's kind of a okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I, I'm going to just stand my ground here, and uh, it's three minutes. Part of this psychological operation is presently on full display in Stephen Harper's as Stephen Harper seeks a second majority government by presenting himself as a wartime prime minister on the basis of a very dubious interpretation. Uh, of what happened on October 22nd. won't go into that. The Islamic Revolution is now 
35 years old. That is roughly the same period of my academic career so far. Over these decades, the Islamic Revolution has created the basis of a fairly stable and well-organized society uh, with uh, considerable give and take among a pluralistic array of distinct communities and constituencies. Of course, Iran is not perfect. No country is. Some human rights violations have taken place in Iran. One of them concerns the death of Zahar Kazemi, a Canadian citizen that met her death in Iranian prison in 2003. Unfortunately, human rights violations take place in all countries, including Canada. Our federal government's refusal to investigate the disappearance and murder of an obscene number of Aboriginal women is an example of a human rights violation in Canada. Many Aboriginal boys and men are also subject to all manner of abuses aimed at First Nations by the neoconservatives, who are no more respectful of Aboriginal rights and titles in Canada than, are the than they are towards the fundamental human rights of the still stateless Palestinian people. One of my most ex uh, memorable experiences in Turan is when we toured the Abrat Museum of Turan after the formal proceedings of the New Horizon Conference were over. The museum is, in fact, the notorious torture chamber of... Uh, and I've got the book of the Abrat Museum with me, uh, the, 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 the notorious tor torture chamber deployed by the Shah's secret police, Savak, against those uh, that its agents considered dissidents. We went through chamber after chamber, cell after cell, in the last page, see, uh, seeing displays of the various kinds of torture that were applied to Abrat's inmates. Throughout much of the period, the Shah... When the Shah uh, was in power, 1953 to 1979, those confined to Abrat uh, prison were deemed to be communist or communist symp sympathizers. We learned that in the final years of the Shah's rule, more and more of those targeted were clerics in the or orbit of Ayatollah uh, Khomeini when he was forced to live in exile. Since returning, I have seen figures that somewhere in the neighborhood of 100,000 individuals were tortured during the reign of the puppet dictator. This new understanding is helping me to interpret those incredible scenes of jubilation in Tehran, which I've referred to. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.